Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn over to John 11. We're going to go through the account of the raising of Lazarus. And uh, I think you're going to see some things you haven't seen before um, from prior preaching on this account. Now, before I get started, let me kind of introduce you to a couple concepts before we really dive into the scriptures. And uh, one concept harkens back to prior messages, and that is the way you approach reading the Gospels. A lot of times, the Gospels are seen as like pithy little phrases. In fact, uh, a lot of Christians take a look at the Gospels like they are a catalog of Jesus' sayings and Jesus's, you know, it's almost his, his miracle performance and that type of thing. And none of it's all that important until you, he finally faces Jerusalem and decides that he has to go to the cross. In fact, I've even heard preachers preach that way, to say, well, he's kind of wandering around waiting to die. But that's not the way that the Gospels are written. They are written with deliberate determination. They are revelation of the redemptive plan of God. They bear witness to that plan. So one thing to do when you approach the Gospels is, as I've said, you read them like you would a detective novel or a mystery novel. I mean, as you're reading, you ask yourself, why are these facts important? Why did the writer sit down and give me these facts? Why is this account in the setting that it is? For instance, with Lazarus, why is it in chapter 11? How come it's not in chapter 2 or chapter 20? Why did John write it here? And, and the same with other accounts. The same with other things. And then, what is the entire account? Because a lot of times, uh, and you'll see it here with the account of Lazarus, preachers cut things short. And we're going to go through verses 1 through 54 So it's a lot of scripture, but it is written kind of like a newspaper account, actually. So it's easy to go through, and uh, I'm going to follow the structure of the NRSV. That's the translation I'm going to be using. And I'm going to read through like the the first paragraph, and then I'm going to preach on it. And then we'll go to the second paragraph and then preach on that. Uh, If you're looking for a Bible with a good paragraph structure, the NRSV, uh, the translation is excellent. I've got problems with some of the uh, words that are translated and some of the ways the translators approached singular and plural and um, that kind of thing. But when it comes to just a modern way of reading the word, uh, the format is great in the NRSV. So, let me do this before we get started in Scripture. You know, uh, we have this verse in verse 4 where, where Jesus says, when he, heard, when he hears about Lazarus' uh, sickness or illness, he says, and I'm used to the King James on this, said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, the question is, really, because uh, this verse has been used to justify sickness as God's glory. 
not so much today, but you, you just go back 20, 30 years, and preachers used to say that sickness came from God, and it was for God's glory as some kind of teaching moment or something like that. But on the other hand, you have just the opposite preached from this verse, where it's like, well, uh, Lazarus was raised, so this is all about healing, and you have preachers preaching that. What I want to focus on here, because it's John's focus, and actually it's Jesus's focus, and that is where he says, rather it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, we have to take a look at what Jesus means by the glory of God. A lot of times today, we put our own, uh, you know, we put our own thoughts on it without any reference to Scripture whatsoever. We just think glory as, a lot of times we think of it as fireworks or power. You know, you're going to see the glory of God. Oh, Lazarus was raised. That's the glory of God. That's the way that we have applied it without even thinking, you know. This is Jesus' own statement. So what in the world did Jesus mean? And if John is quoting Jesus, you know, you have, to, you have to wonder, how did John use it? Why did he emphasize this account where Jesus says it's not, uh, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God? Now, I'm going to give you a hint. I thought about keeping it as a surprise till the end of the message, but I thought, well, no, uh, let's deal with this up front. If you go back to the uh, Old Testament, you have this account of Moses that he says to God, it's Exodus 33, he says, show me your glory, I pray. And he's talking to Yahweh, he's talking to God Almighty. And the problem was that uh, God's glory, well, let's, let's come back a little bit. When Moses says, show me your glory, I pray, he's not asking God to show him a bunch of mighty works. Moses already saw all that with the crossing of the Red Sea. You know, he already saw that with all the plagues in Egypt and all of that. So, you know, Moses comes to the Lord after all that and says, show me your glory glory. So what is Moses talking about? Well, we get, we get a sense of what he's talking about by God's answer. In uh, Exodus thirty-three nineteen, God replies and says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In verse 20, he says this, but, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen." Basically, his face cannot be seen because it would kill Moses. But when you, what you take away from this account is the meaning of glory. 
and that is God's essence, the personality essence of his being. And God tells Moses here, my essence is so good, my essence is so beyond that you can't deal with it. You can't handle it. You're a sinful man. You cannot handle my goodness. You can only see my back. You cannot see my face. So from that, we get an understanding of glory. Now let's go back to, getting a little bit ahead of myself, but let's go back to John 11.4. When Jesus uh, hears that Lazarus is sick, so when he, Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So if we, if we take the account from Moses, I mean from Exodus, about Moses, and we apply that here, Jesus says, This sickness is not unto death, but it's what? It's so the glory of God may be revealed, what? His essence, his personality, his goodness. And then he also says that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. The thing is, when Jesus says in other places of the gospel, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And actually, you could turn that around too. If you've seen the Father, you've seen Jesus. So with that in mind, let's go into... um, the account with about Lazarus. I'll start with verse 1 through verse 6. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his, and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill or sick. Now stop right there. Because I just want you to see this about John's account, John's gospel. Uh, You don't see Mary, this story about Mary anointing the Lord's feet, until later on in the gospel. And what that does is that gives you a hint of how deliberate John is. You know, here he is in John 11, and he's reporting, he's, he's bearing witness of this woman named Mary, and he says, okay, this is who I am talking about. And we're going to get to her later on. So, you know, he was not an automaton when he wrote his gospel. He was inspired by the Spirit, and that's how God chose his gospels, Paul's epistles, and the rest of the word to be given or handed down to us. So let's read on. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness is not unto death. I'm so used to King James. Uh, But for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And the NRSV says, accordingly, uh, the better translation is now, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, they were his friends. After having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So, let's pull some things out of this before we head on to the next paragraph. You see that Jesus gets a message, and what the sisters are basically saying, hey, Lazarus is sick, 
And they don't say, come and heal him, but that's the implied message in the message, right? He said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, and, and this, is, this is really interesting because I don't know that he's saying it to anybody in particular. He had disciples with him, but he says, this sickness is not unto death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay, that is his mission statement on this. He, he, he doesn't say, I will come. Remember the centurion? You know, the centurion says, well, you don't even have to come. You just say the word. But he had other people in the Gospels, and Jesus said, well, I'll come. Here he doesn't say that. He says, oh, well, this, this illness, this sickness is not unto death, which actually is pretty peculiar, right? Because we know later on that Lazarus actually dies. So what I want to point out here is Jesus is speaking on another level. And you're going to see that all through the account. He is responding to his vocational call. He is not responding to the people around him. He's responding to what? His vocation. So he says, well, this is going to result in the glory of God. Now, when you go back to what our explanation is or our definition, you're going to see God's essence here. Now, go down to verse 6. He said, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, isn't that bizarre? He gets a message from these two sisters who are his friends. In fact, John's gospel shows that they're very close friends, and Lazarus was a close friend, and Jesus doesn't move an inch. He stays where he is two whole days, and, it, and it's like he didn't say anything. What's he doing? Why does he do this? The thing is, he knows by the Spirit not to move. And that's one thing that we really miss here in the Gospels. You know, when Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan, the Spirit came upon him in a bodily form. And then you read in Acts how he was anointed. And one thing that uh, I would say that non-full gospel Christians do is they try, they, they try to understand the Gospels without any knowledge of the gifts of the Spirit or the leading of the Spirit. Jesus knew, knew somehow not to go. So he stayed where he was for two days. What's he doing? Well, we have the confidence that he's doing what he sees the Father do, because that's what he told us, right, in the Gospels. He said, I only do what I see the Father do. Well, the Father apparently um, led him to not do a thing for two days. So like I said, Jesus is operating on another level. He's operating, what, in response to the Spirit and in response to the vocation. He's not responding, lickety-split, to the circumstances, like a lot of times we do. So let's read on. Now, uh, I'll read to verse 16. It says, Then after this, and it's after those two days, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you. Are you going to go there again? 
And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble, because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble, because the light is not in them. And after saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. There's a lot to pull out of this. And I want you to see the dynamics. You know, you've got the dynamics of Jesus speaking to disciples and them responding and that kind of thing. So let's kind of break it down. As I said, then after this, it's after two days. And the picture here is all of a sudden Jesus says, okay, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples are like, what? What are you talking about? He said, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and you're going to go there again? And Jesus answers and speaks about working during the day. And when he talks in this manner, he's talking about his vocation. He's talking about his mission. And he says, he says what? Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. He's one who's walking in the day. Now, he tells them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to awaken him. Now, this is one instance, again, and you see it all the time in the Gospels, where Jesus is kind of speaking over their heads. He's, he, his vantage point is on the big picture, is on his mission. Virtually everybody he's talking about uh, are in the minutia. You know, they're, they've got their own little narratives going on, and it's basically, you know, what's in front of their eyes. And you see that time and time again where he gives a statement, and they respond not to his statement. They got it all wrong. They're responding to something else. And so he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am there going there to awaken him. And so they say, well, man, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be fine. So he's got to speak plainly. He's got to kind of come down to their level and say, he's dead. And he says something very provocative here in verse 15. He says, for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Now step back from that a minute and let's break this down. Let's unpack it. Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there. If he was there, he would have healed Lazarus. I mean, go back up to the message of the sisters. Said, hey, Lord, the one that you love, he's ill, he's sick. Well, if Jesus was there, they would have, what? They would have begged him and everything else to go heal Lazarus, and Lazarus would have probably been healed, maybe. I say that because the gospel doesn't, doesn't, doesn't say that explicitly, but that's the implication. You know, Jesus is anointed. It might be that the, the gifts of the Spirit worked or whatever, um, and Lazarus might have been healed. But what Jesus is saying here is profound. For your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Now, 
you go back up to what? This sickness is not unto death, but unto the glory of God. Jesus is still thinking about this. He is still thinking about that, what that, we, we can call it a mission statement. That is where the illness is not unto death. And ironically, he just told his disciples, Lazarus is dead. So he's speaking on another level. He's speaking about his vocation. Now, if you go back to John 10, you see that the Jews did pick up stones to stone Jesus. I mean, things are getting, uh, things are getting, what's the word? Uh, agitated about him. The, the environment is growing hostile against him. And in John 10, you see that they leave. And then Jesus, what? He waits two days. But then he says, okay, let's go back. And Thomas, one of his disciples, talks to the other disciples and says, okay, let's go to that we may die with him. That we might die. I mean, he understands what the situation is. He understands that, hey, um, they are risking their lives going back with Jesus. All right, let's go to the next paragraph. It said, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, let me stop here and just mention that back in those days, there was a tr- Jewish tradition that um, when somebody died, uh, probably when a Jew died because it was a Jewish tradition, uh, the soul hovered over the body for three days. And if the body was not revived in three days, then the soul leaves for good. And so that's why it's significant here in this account that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days because that means that to the Jews there, they believed that the soul had already left. Now let's keep on reading. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah. Uh, Most Bibles say the Christ, but we're talking about Jews, and Christ is the Greek equivalent to Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. So you see that uh, Martha hears that Jesus is coming. She goes out to meet him. You know, she's friends with him. And what does she say? She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, that's a a pretty bad indictment, isn't it? Um, Lots of theologians, you go through the the commentaries, and they try to dress this up and make Martha look good. But, you know, um, she said what she said. And, you know, you think about this, she and Mary sent that message to Jesus, the one whom you love is sick. And then they don't hear from him. 
They don't hear anything for a few days, and then all of a sudden he appears. Well, Martha makes a beeline for him and says, you know, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. I mean, that's a pretty strong indictment. But And she follows it up with, you know, uh, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And I always, I always hear it like that in my head because she, she is, man, she's hitting him hard and then she wants to try to soften exactly what she just said to him. You know, they're close friends. And she doesn't want, you know, him to become enraged or anything. So she says that, but, you know, you can tell just from the context, she really doesn't mean it. Her whole mindset is on Lazarus. It's not on what Jesus is doing. And that's where you see this conflict. You see that people have their own narratives here. You know, Jesus' disciples are like, okay, we'll go because we'll just go die with him. Well, Jesus isn't thinking of dying. He is thinking of what? Working during the day. He's not thinking of being of dying through stoning. That's what I'm getting at. But the disciples are all over that. And then he runs into Martha. And Martha, like, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But Jesus had told his disciples, I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake, so that you might believe. And then Martha responds, you know, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And that's, granted, that's a little bit ambiguous. Martha says, oh, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And she gets that probably from Daniel 12, 2. That scripture says, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And if you read through the book of Acts uh, and you read the Gospels, you see that the Pharisees believed in that resurrection and the Sadducees did not. So she says, well, um, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And again, she is, she's not really responding to Jesus. He's talking on one level and she's kind of halfway responding just based upon her own narrative. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now that word I am, that's the, that's the divine name. I am the resurrection and the life. And he, he asked her, do you believe this? And again, it's kind of like this mental ascent. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. And you'll see that she really, uh, it's, it's kind of like just a throwaway statement to her. Why? Because she's thinking of her brother Lazarus and the fact that Jesus wasn't there when they sent for him. I mean, we're talking about real human beings here. Mary, Martha, disciples, and we're going to see this about the Jews. Jesus is on another level. He's speaking on another level, and we're going to see that. So let's go through John uh, 28 through 37. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, and this is Mary, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who are with her in the house, and these are, uh, these are almost like professional mourners, you know. Their brother died, and so people of the community come out and they mourn with her. The Jews who were, 
who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. (laughs) We just heard that, right? Two sisters saying the same thing. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, the NRSV says he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. I think the King James says he groaned in spirit. And a lot of times preaching has taken that to be that that was intercession in the spirit. I don't think that's the way that this verse is supposed to be interpreted or translated. Um, Really, in the Greek, you go into the Greek, he was indignant. He was angry in spirit and stirred within himself. He said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus, it says, began to weep. You go back in the Greek, and I think the better translation is, he burst into tears. So the Jews said, oh, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he, could not he who opened the blind eyes or the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? You know, so here we have this paragraph where it's just one indictment after another. You know, if my, (laughs) if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And she falls at his feet, and actually, it's a really bad scene. I mean, she is torn up like crazy, and she's only thinking of herself and Martha, their own personal grief. And you see that Jesus has something else on his mind. You know, he's operating on a different level. That's why he stayed back two days. He's following the Spirit. He understands why... um, He understands his role or what his vocation is in this account. So, you get to verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was what? He was angry. He was indignant. That's at their unbelief. We usually, you know, we have all these pictures in American Christianity where Jesus is like this happy-go-lucky guy and, you know, um, kind of like this uh, hippie dude that goes around just with a smile on his face all the time. Well, a lot of times you go to the Gospels and you see that he gets fed up with people. He gets fed up with unbelief. He's been with them. These are his close friends, Mary and Martha. And you see that they are accusing him. They're impugning his character to say, if you had been here. I mean, the the back message is, we sent a message to you and you didn't get here in time. And then the Jews are the very same way. You know, why? Because we see their attitudes. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? You know, isn't that something? These people don't have a lick of the spirit on them, but they look to Jesus and it's like they can order him around. You know, it's unbelief. And so it says that, what, he burst into tears. And at looking at this, you can see that it's out of frustration. Jesus is a man. He's operating in the will. He does what he sees the Father do. And all these accusations come at him right and left, even from his closest friends. 
So you see, he, he bursts into tears. And the Jews see these tears, oh, how he loved him, but what? You've got a contingent that says, couldn't he have saved this dying man? I mean, you know, you hear people talk like that all the time. No regard to what Jesus is doing. Now let's go on to John 11, 38. Then Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, what? Greatly angered inside, within him came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Now Martha is there. The sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he's been dead four days. And Jesus turns to her and says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Well, let me, let me get through this passage, and then we'll go and unpack it. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, I'll tell you right here, that's where 99% of the preachers stop. You know, it's kind of like this climatic moment of the raising of Lazarus and loose him and let him go. And then the preaching starts about just how great that was. Now, let's unpack this and then we're going we're gonna to keep on going on because John's got something else in mind. And so does Jesus from this raising of Lazarus. So going back up to verse 38, Martha says, what, in verse 39, already there is a stench because he has been dead for four days. And he says to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Again, there's that statement again, that phrase, the glory of God. Mary, didn't I tell you that you're going to see his essence, that you're going to see, you're going to see who he is, his character, the, 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 his being. That's what he's saying. And then, so they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me. So he's speaking for the benefit of the crowd. So he says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man comes out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, a lot of times, like I said, you hear preaching where the raising of Lazarus is that glory that Jesus was talking about, but that is not the way that John writes this gospel. Amen. Amen. Because let's read on. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. So you've got a small coterie of Jews who are at the tomb, and they believe in the Lord. But this is where it gets interesting, and this is what John, this is why John gave the account in the gospel, starting in verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. 
So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, What are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place, meaning the temple, and our nation. Now, let me stop there for a minute, and let's just kind of unpack this a minute. You've got what you see is political expediency here. You've got the leaders of Israel saying, man, what in the world are we going to do? Because this guy is not part of us. This guy is performing signs and everybody's starting to believe him. And what? We're going to lose our temple and we're going to lose our nation. So then what happens? Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. He did not say this on his own. Now, isn't that wild? He didn't say that on his own. Now, let's go back and let's read that again. He said, you do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. When you read the gospel accounts, what happens? Jesus is crowned king of the Jews. And then you see here, said he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation. Now, isn't that wild? This is a high priest who is against the Lord's plan of redemption. And somehow the Spirit comes on him and he prophesies about Jesus that Jesus was about to die for the nation, meaning Jesus was about to die for Israel. And then verse 52, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. To gather into one the dispersed children of God. What is John talking about here? He's talking about those outside of Israel. He's talking about us, the Gentiles. So from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Now, isn't that wild? They planned to put him to death, what? After hearing of the raising of Lazarus. So when you look at John's gospel, what is it? The raising of Lazarus puts events into action, into place that pretty much uh, is the death knell, so to speak, for Jesus. They said, so from that day on, they planned, they determined to put him to death. And then you go back to, what did Jesus tell his disciples? I'm glad I wasn't there for your sakes, talking about Lazarus being sick. If Jesus had been there and Lazarus just, you know, was a healing. Well, he had healed the blind man. We see that from, um, from the accounts here with the Jews. It wasn't this huge miracle, this working of miracles by the gifts of the Spirit that was so outstanding that actually the, the Jews start shaking and said, we've got to do something about this. This is what we're going to do. We're going to kill him. So, uh, so how's that relate to... Jesus telling Martha, 
Didn't I tell you that you would see the glory of God? Jesus' death in John's gospel is the glory of God. It is his essence. It shows who he is. Let me, uh, let me read to you Philippians 2, 6-9, because you'll get this. This will help you. It says, Who, though he was in the form of God, speaking of Jesus, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in likeness as a man, and being found in human form, he humiliated himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, his response was, this sickness is not unto death, but it's what? It's for the glory of God, the manifested glory of God. And then we see through the account, well, the man did die. So, so what's Jesus talking about? He said, well, the end result's not going to be the death. The end result is going to be people seeing the glory of God, which is his character and his essence. And that is a God who poured himself out to save his own creation. That is what Lazarus is about. That's why we see it in the gospel. It's not, it's not about just raising a man after four days. You know, as excellent or magnificent or whatever you want to call that miracle as being. No, it put things into motion where we see the Jews decided we are going to kill him. And what John does is he shows that the high priest actually prophesies that Jesus will die for the sake of what? The nation and the dispersed children of God. Amen. Who are the children of God? Well, you go back to John 1.12, same gospel. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become what? Children of God. Hallelujah. So isn't that great? Isn't that great? Let me read to you uh, Galatians 2.19 in the, in the context that we just uh, seeing it through the eyes of this Lazarus account. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who, having loved me and gave himself for me. And if you want to include Philippians with that, who loved me and gave himself over for me and humiliated himself for me. That is the glory of God. And that's why when you read the early church fathers and they talk about sin, you know, they write about sin and they said, there's no way I could sin against the Lord. After what he did, after what he did on the cross, are you kidding me? There's no way I can sin. I'm not even going to get close to it because he loved me and he gave himself for me. He humiliated himself for me. And that is why we see the account of Lazarus in John's gospel. Hallelujah. In fact, um, well, you can read the next verse. I don't, uh, well, John eleven fifty four. After they determine that they're going to kill Jesus, verse 54 says, Jesus therefore no longer walked about openly among the Jews, 
but went, went from there to a town called Ephraim in the region near the wilderness, and he remained there with his disciples. Why? Because the next time he shows, the next time he comes, that's when they're going to kill him. And you see that in John's gospel. Amen. So let me end it with a, uh, with a benediction. Isn't that cool? I mean, it's really cool to see the, the account of Lazarus in its true uh, context. Now for the benediction, now may the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.